Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to episode 55 of Conquering Columbus. Mike here, and uh, we got a great episode lined up for you today with Mr. Mike Lanise. He's a uh, former OSU wide receiver, a Rhodes Scholar, and he's involved here in the startup industry in Columbus. We had a lot of fun in this episode, and we learned a lot from Mike, and we hope you guys do too. But before we dive into that, I want to take a moment and remind you all, go ahead and look at whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Click that subscribe button. It really helps us out, and it'll make sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. The last thing we want to do before we get this episode rolling is take a moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more and check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. And if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city, please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. And one last thing before we get this episode rolling, conquerors, we want to hear from you. There will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode. And if you guys could fill that out for us, we'd really appreciate it. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Mike Lanise. He was a uh, wide receiver for the Buckeyes from 1982 to 1986, and uh, we, he went on to become a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford College, where he earned a BA in philosophy, politics, and economics. He was a civil affairs officer in the U.S. Army Reserve and held high-level management positions at multiple companies before um, today, where he's the co-founder and CEO for On Scene Marketing, which designs location drive, uh, 
driven, location driven collaboration apps that we will talk a little more about later. But welcome to the show, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here today. And uh, one of the first questions we always like to start our show off with is, "What's a typical day look like for you?" <laughs> I was going to start with something different. I'm actually oh, working man. on some econ homework right now. I'm not going to hit you with it, but I have terribly hard question that I can't get through. So after the show, <laughs> we're going to sit down here and crunch some numbers together and yeah. uh, figure out from that. Um, happy to help if I can. Um, but a typical day is uh, getting up having lots of conversations on Skype, on cell phone, and running to meetings uh, with potential customers, influencers, uh, people that are willing to share their time and experience with us so we can get smarter on, on how to develop product. I mean, that, that's a, uh, I guess a typical day is, there is no typical day. Every, every day is different. So what stage are you guys at with the company you're working on now? And you want to talk a little bit about what it does and, and kind of what direction you guys are headed? Yeah, so we've got a really cool company right now. It's called OnScene, and it's O-N-S-E-E-N. Um, it is a location-based collaboration tool to help mobile teams get on the same page. So that's really what we're trying to do is connect people, places, and things. And increasingly today, because of you know, these infernal devices, as I hold a cell phone <laughs> in my hand, um, people are... Not, not just casually mobile, but they're inherently and deliberately mobile. And what that means is to collaboration, to the office environment, to the office dynamic, it means that a manager today has a much more difficult time in coordinating his resources in the field. But he or she also has a much bigger opportunity to exploit location-based collaboration. And what I mean by that is all of a sudden now, if you're talking about your, your field staff running around in different territories, they could be a sales staff, they could be a, a service staff, um, they have things that they could be doing that are based on or triggered by location, so where they are. And back at the home office, a manager can see that information visually. Right. So um, there are some really good collaboration tools in, in the market right now one which I love, my, one of my all-time favorite apps is called Basecamp, if you guys have ever... I was going to ask about that. Yeah, so sure. Basecamp is a wonderful app. The problem is that Basecamp was designed primarily for development teams. So software developers, and they gather around their, their laptop or their desktop or whatever, even on their, on their mobile phones, and it is geared towards static teams. They're inherently static. They're writing code. Compared to teams that are inherently mobile field techs that are running around trying to repair HVAC systems, um, state organizations with state agencies with lots of people in the field, a, uh, an organization that has a fluid mobile team that changes on a daily basis. Today it's John, Joe, and Susie. Tomorrow Mark is going to be on the team. How do you add Mark in a very seamless, efficient way? Um, a lot of this stuff, um, I don't know if you want to get this deep into in the on-scene, but I'm, obviously I'm really excited about it. A lot of this stuff, frankly, comes um, out of my military experience. Mm -hmm. You know, the military, and particularly I'm in, uh, in the Army Reserve right now, the Army is, is really good at, at a few things, um, one of which is blowing stuff up, right? That doesn't, doesn't apply here. But um, <laughs> another thing is they have tools to help track their resources in the field. So looking back you know, from the perspective of a commander in the field, they want to know where their resources are. 
And if the resources are misplaced or misallocated, they want to be able to say, hey, I need you guys to move from this area to that area. And when you get to that area, I want you to do the following 14 things. And then I, as a commander back in the field, looking at a big screen TV, can, say, can see where all this stuff is happening. There's no substitute for a graphical 3D view of the world. So in real time, we're trying to help, and moving from the military world, but it's the same concept, into the, the commercial world, or the private sector, um, even the public sector, there's no substitute for being able to see information visually. So in the case of Basecamp, I will see a static view of a particular task that I need to accomplish. It'll say, go to the store and buy two gallons of milk, right? And the, the latitude and longitude, the coordinates of that store is a big string of numbers, right? I can see that in Basecamp, but it doesn't really mean all that much to me. If I turn that instead into a map, that task appears on a map, all of a sudden I have 3D visual information and it's intuitive. I catch it really quickly. It's in real time. So now if I have resources that are being allocated in real time, let's say my field tech is running out to an appointment, the appointment cancels. He can go there, come back to the office, but that's inefficient. How about if I reroute him from where he was supposed to go to the next closest appointment, that's efficiency. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things we're in several different areas, event management, um, state and local government. Uh, there's a number of different areas where we think that we can really add a lot of value. Compliance is especially important for a lot of folks. How do you know someone showed up to a particular place? Well, what we can do, we can geofence a location and say, Yes, this person broke that fence at 8.52 a.m. They broke it again at 4.15 p.m. And so now we can pretty much say that person visited that location. So think about fraud reduction, compliance, validation. All those things become, become very doable and very easy to do with our technology. So that's a long answer to a very short question. I apologize. No, I like the granularity. Right. We actually we get a lot of requests for that same thing in our industry for the maintenance techs that are out in the field because we work with different facilities managers. They want to know what time do they reach here? Are they lying to me? Are they actually fixing things that they should be? Um, so it's kind of an interesting concept. And, you know, and it's funny, uh, to piggyback off that, I've also seen that in, uh, so previously before this, I worked uh, for a short time in trucking and logistics. And yeah. they are all over that. They want to make sure their drivers are taking the right routes and, and not following off um, the you know, beaten path and going down places they shouldn't be going or for hazmat drivers driving on. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, on. it's a safety issue right. for the hazmat guys. Yeah, what we're not about is um, tracking in a creepy way. Mm -hmm. That's not what this is about. This is tracking, you know, more in a B2B sense. And in some cases, you know, we're not actually going to track somebody like in an Uber sense where you can see every movement on a screen we'll only actually capture information while they're in the designated geofence area. So while they're there, we might ping them and say, are you still there, are you still there, are you still there? That's great if they, if they are. If they're not there, we don't care where they are. So they can be anywhere else. We don't track it, we don't collect it, we don't store it. Um, and so it becomes, in our view anyway, a much better way to ensure privacy. And privacy is one of the one of the things that I, should concern a lot of people, unfortunately, I don't think it concerns enough people. 
but we're very sensitive to privacy when it comes to location-based solutions. So it's a strategic approach to not pinpoint them, basically, then, just to make sure that you're stricken, strictly sticking to barriers. Um, so that is, the barrier, the boundary, the geofence, whatever you want to call it, um, is one solution that we're implementing in a couple of our, um, our cases today. In other cases that we're working on, uh, they want more granularity in the tracking. And so there's different ways to track. So, for example, you can do manual check-ins. Um, the, the team manager can say, okay, everybody out in the field, I want you all to check in right now. So let's say you're managing an event, and the event happens to be a marathon, right? And so you've got people spread out all over the city of Columbus, and you want people um, in the short north to move to uh, Clintonville for some reason, right? Because that's where there's a need. Something happened in the Clintonville area at mile marker you know, 15. Um, we need you guys to go over there. So we might say, okay, everybody check in so I see where you are. On the other hand, um, we're starting to, to look at some scenarios in which the event happens to be emergency management. So now I've got emergency management folks that need to be tracked. We might want to track them a little bit more closely, right? And there's an expectation from them that they are being tracked. They know they're being tracked. And so we might say, all right, we're going we're gonna to ping their phone every hour on the hour so we know where they are or we'll do continuous tracking so it's it's a, it's a spectrum really mm -hmm. and as long as you are absolutely forward and transparent with what you're doing and how you're collecting and storing information then i think you know the users can have a a, a good deal of buy-in to that system as opposed to discovering you know six eight twelve months later oh my my company was spying on me and that's never what we want to see. And what has been the feedback from the market? I mean, you guys are working with, so kind of two questions here that pop in my head. I'm, I'm curious on what the market's feedback has been for you guys. And then I'm also curious, it seems like you guys are still kind of evolving the product and you work with a lot of different scenarios. So how are you kind yeah. of narrowing down? What uh, you're that's, doing? A, that's a great observation. So, you know, with, with all, I was going to say with all startups, that's not true. With all startups, in which I've been involved anyway, it's always seeming to work out this way. You start with, concepts and then you go to product development and then you go to marketing and so on um, we always start with a shotgun approach in other words go out and just spray the market with your solution and see what works when you start to to get a sense that this particular part of the market this segment of the market is responding well then you adjust fire and you move all of your resources into that particular segment um, the good news for us is that you know, we've already made one, well, one huge pivot, and I, I guess I'd call it a, a smaller but substantial pivot, and we're, we're locked in on where we think the market wants us to be. And so we think that we're going to be really good across multiple verticals because we're approaching this really at the end of the day from a, uh, the perspective of an API platform, and that means that we're not necessarily in the future going to sell mobile apps. Instead, we're going to sell access to the underlying code that helps other pe people build their mobile apps. So they only might want to take pieces and parts of our code and, and, and use that in their existing or their new mobile apps so they can do that. Um, ultimately, that's where we want to go. An API-based platform is, I think... Um, Pretty standard these days in the industry. Um, it's just something that, that developers want to see. So we can jump 
back into more granularity. That was really good. I think it was awesome overview. But talk about like maybe team members in the direction of the company, maybe like major goals um, later in the interview. What I want to talk on though is maybe bring it back towards the beginning. Maybe talk a little sure. bit about your time playing football and then the companies that you started and then your time with the military and bring it up since we could probably talk to you for four hours. With everything right. college, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of that's a lot of information that we're going to squeeze here into the next uh, next ten minutes or so. So let's uh, dive in. So where do you want to start? Let's start. Let's start with football. You know, everybody here. We're in Columbus. We're talking yeah. about the Buckeyes. We're all Buckeyes here. Um, I should start by saying my favorite sport is probably wrestling. So <laughs> <laughs> talking to a bunch of wrestling guys. Um, yeah, I'm from I'm from Cleveland, uh, Northeast Ohio, a place called Mayfield, which is on the east side of Cleveland, and um, hotbed for wrestling. Hotbed for wrestling. Yeah, I mean. When I grew up, I mean, you you wrestled. People just wrestled. I didn't, all my friends wrestled, so you just kind of kind of did that. Um, yeah, let me uh, let me spend two seconds on that. I'll, I'll get on my my soapbox for a second. Um, so, you know, one of the things that's disturbed me as I've gotten older and I had kids of my own is the tendency for youth sports to get into this single track mentality where everyone is going to do one sport. And they're going to do it from the time they're five years old to the time they graduate from high school. And people are going to pay a lot of money for special, specialized coaches to get their kids ready to go to the next level. Because you know, if they don't do it when they're five, then they're going to be behind the curve when they're six or seven. And you get this arms race that builds up around these kids where, where parents are spending you know, incredible sums of money. And for the most part, you know, it's still 95% genetic. Um, either tall or you're short, you run fast or you don't, you jump high or you can't. And um, I think at the margin, you can do some additional training to help some of the good kids get really good and some of the marginal kids get kind of good so they have a great high school experience. Um, but, yeah, one of the things – and. Uh, I heard the second hand. I, I hope it's true. And knowing the guy, I think it is true. One of the great things that Urban Meyer did uh, a couple years ago was essentially to say to folks, you know, I'm not going to recruit you unless you play at least two sports. All right. So it's, it's being a well-rounded athlete. So let me take it back to wrestling. I mean, wrestling is one of the, the elemental sports. It's one of the sports that defines other sports. I was a mediocre wrestler, right? I mean, I wasn't a state champ. Um, I was halfway decent, but more importantly, it helped me get ready to be a better football player. You know, same thing with track. I'm going to talk about track as well, but, but wrestling was one of those fundamental sports where um, there was an emotional aspect to wrestling. There was a character, heart-based aspect to wrestling, and there was an athletic and conditioning and mental toughness aspect to wrestling. All those things transfer very nicely into football. And, you know, I'm really disheartened when I, when I see kids that just get into this single-track world and all they're going to do is play football in the fall and then go in the weight room in the winter. And then maybe in the spring do some other football-related activities. Go out and try some different stuff, especially if you're, if you're a defensive lineman. You know, wrestle. That's where you're going to figure out how to, how to hand fight. That's where, how you're going to figure out how to get leverage. Do all those things that you need to do, on the, uh, uh, you know, especially in the interior part of, part of the game. But, no, I mean, wrestling, I can talk for hours and hours about wrestling. I, I think it's, it's a wonderful sport. Um, 
you know, I've got two kids in wrestling right now. They're both female, which kind of surprises a lot of people. But uh, it's growing. Though. It's growing, and you know, for for women in particular, it's one of those things that. And, and my my girl started off in in martial arts, so it wasn't a huge transition. Maybe back in the day, it was kind of odd to see females wrestling, but anymore, once they're in jujitsu, I mean, what's what's the difference between jujitsu and wrestling? Mm-hmm. You know, a gi. <laughs> that's, yep. that's really about it so anyway I, I, I digress I apologize for that um, so you know for football um, growing up in Cleveland it was just one of those things that I, I did you know from the time I could probably walk my dad played football in college at uh, Miami University under a guy called Eric Parsegian he was a legendary coach one of the coach at Notre Dame um, so I guess it was always preordained that I would play football um, and I had wonderful coaches growing up from the time I played CYO or Catholic Youth Organization football, you know, kind of the Pee Wee football, um, Mr. Wisen was my first coach. And having great coaches early is the best thing you can do for kids. Having guys that don't care about wins and losses, but instead care about fundamentals, teaching fundamentals to kids, how to block and how to tackle. I can't tell you how many kids I've seen over the years that are great athletes, but they're not great football players. Why? Because they never learned the fundamentals. Through high school, my coach was Byron Morgan. And then when I got to uh, Ohio State, my head coach was a guy called Earl Bruce, whom I loved dearly. And my position coach for wide receivers and quarterbacks was a guy um, called Jim Trussell that you know, <laughs> a few people have heard about. So Yeah, he made a name for himself. Yeah, later I, I mean, so I've been blessed with really good coaches in my life. And not just on the football field with the X's and O's, but the other parts. And that's the other parts that really matter at the end of the day. And, and we spend... When you guys know from wrestling, how many times do you actually have a wrestling match? The rest of the time is in the wrestling room and in the locker room and in the training room and all the other stuff that goes on. And so that's where you build a program. It's not necessarily building the football team. It's building the football program. And we're all part of that Ohio State ethic, that Ohio State culture. And I don't think it's a whole lot different between the football team and the wrestling team. I think it's all part of that hard-nosed Ohio work-hard um, culture, and we're, we're products of that. And it's funny. I was kind of adopted into that culture. So I'm from San Diego, California originally. Yeah. And, uh, it started really soft. I, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned that you know, there's that when you were in high school and growing up that everybody wrestled. That is not how it is in San Diego, California. Yeah. So it was a very different aspect. Being adopted into this culture and the culture of Ohio in particular, it was a really cool experience for me. And here I am still. Yeah. Uh, you know, graduate. Still kind of soft, but maybe. still kind of soft. <laughs> but they, they they worked on it. But um, so let's you know kind of move forward a little bit after football. I know we could probably sit here and talk to you for hours about your football experience and um, that sort of thing. But I, I was kind of interested in um, being a Rhodes Scholar and going to Oxford. Um, yeah, so small correction, if I might, it's, mm-hmm. good. it's not Oxford college. It's university of Oxford. University of Oxford. So, yeah. They get, they get funny about that. So, I, um, we get funny about the, he, the Mike, Mike, <laughs> the clearly, Mike clearly didn't make it in. Right. So. <laughs> no, um, so the whole thing with, with the Rhodes scholarship came about really because of my mentor in, in college. He was my uh, military history professor, a guy called Whit Murray. And some other guys, um, my political science instructor called Herb Asher, my English professor called David Franz, you know, the three guys who really helped me understand 
what kind of opportunities I had at Ohio State because I came down to play football. Right? I think people get this misconception about football players um, coming to school to play football and graduating in the NFL, and, all, and that, that's great, and that happens sometimes. But you know, if you take advantage of the opportunity, and you guys know this, if you take advantage of the opportunity, this is a wonderful institution. And there are so many different facets of the institution that we can take advantage of. And this was one of those times where uh, I had, again, really good coaching in a different, you know, different part of the world. I had very good coaching and people who said, hey, there's this thing called a road scholarship. I didn't know what it was when I was a freshman. You know, but by the time I was a sophomore, um, I started to learn more about it. And I said, you know, when it's, re- when it's time, when I'm ready, um, I want to apply for that. And so they kept me interested, they kept me informed, they kept me educated in the process, and I had to do what I had to do in the classroom to make that a possibility, uh, but they were there to help me when the opportunity presented itself. So the process was uh, it's different, I mean, that was 100 years ago, so it was you know, different back then from what it is now, but uh, there was a, uh, an interview at the state level, so you'd go up, um, I think it was, the interview was in Cleveland, They'd invite a handful of people to the interview based on an essay that you wrote and an application that you put together um, and the endorsement of your university. I think that's how it worked. And then out of that particular interview, they would select four people. There might have been you know, 50 people that they selected from around Ohio. And not just kids that went to school in Ohio, but kids that were from Ohio that applied um, from Ohio in terms of, of the application but they were Harvard kids, they were Yale kids or wherever they were going to college. And once you got out of the Cleveland interview, if you made it out, uh, then you went to Chicago for the regional interview where they selected, I guess, four. Um, so for a total of 32, eight regions, so four kids out of the Chicago region. So 32 U.S. Rhodes Scholars per year. I think that number is still the same, but the process is a little bit different. And then you would actually go from... Um, your undergraduate uh, degree into Oxford. And back then, you would still probably want to, we would say major in, they would say read. Uh, So you'd read a degree like uh, philosophy, politics, and economics, PPE for short. You'd read PPE, and that would be what you did there. It was technically considered an undergraduate degree because Oxford undergraduate degrees are still probably the best in the world. Um, and their graduate programs really developed relatively late and kind of in response to the success of American graduate schools. So they would say 100 years ago that why do you need grad school? You're, you've already gone through an undergraduate curriculum that was the best in the world. And so, um, but I think you know, they've done remarkably good things on, at the graduate level now as well. So that's, that's the, the process to get there. And then you know, once you're there, you're a student. You're in one of the colleges. So um, Oxford is comprised of, I think, 30-ish, I forgot all this information, but 30-ish separate colleges. And the difference is that um, each college is really designed independently to get you ready for common exams. So at the end of your typically three years, if you're a a British student going from scratch, um, and in our case, it was two years, at the end of those two or three years, you would sit for exams and irrespective of the college that you actually belong to, you'd have to take the same exam. So your, and there's a lot of terminology here, but your teacher or your professor was actually, they're called dons or tutors. So your don would have 
separate sessions with you, typically one-on-one or one-on-two types of sessions, which is you know, mind-boggling for kids today in the States. When you think of these at Ohio State, you know, a thousand people in your class or in a lecture hall, um, you're there with your, your, with your Dom, and that's it. And what he, would, he or she would do is to assign a topic to you and say, here are some suggested things that you should go read. Um, come back next week with an essay. What? <laughs> that's not how we did it uh, at Ohio State. Um, typically, the, the American model was that you went to class, you know, maybe three days a week, maybe five days a week. You sat in a class. A professor got up and lectured. You copied notes as furiously as you could. You ingested that information, and then when it came time to take the test, you know, ordinarily, you would just regurgitate that information back. You might have to add a little bit of value to it, but by and large, that was the model. Um, and I know I'm probably making some people really crazy angry right now, but that's essentially what the model was. Um, but the Oxford model is just totally different where it's the, the Cambridge module, uh, Oxford, Oxbridge is, I guess, what they call it. Um, you sit for those common exams, and your, your don or your tutor is there more uh, as a coach to get you ready to, to sit for those exams. And so you come back that next week with the things that he suggested reading and, and your essay. And, of course, he always assigned or suggested a whole lot more stuff than you could possibly read and, and, and digest in a week. So what he was teaching you at the time was not just the subject matter, but the process of being eclectic in what you chose to read and how much time you spent. You know, so you were, the, the term is really popular right now, but curating, um, I hate that term, but you know, <laughs> curating the things that you were really um, supposed to, to, to read out of this mass of other stuff. It's signal to noise, and um, you wanted as much signal as you could. So you go back next week, okay, I read this stuff. I had to put an essay together as fast as I could, which is, again, like real life. And you read aloud, which is a scary experience if you haven't done it. You read aloud your essay, and the, the don or tutor is just sitting back, probably smoking a pipe or drinking some sherry or whatever they're doing, listening to you drone on. And at the end of the essay, he would say, okay, you know, here's what I liked and here's what I didn't like. And here's what I would suggest to, to, to really um, strengthen up on before the exams. Uh, and then start the whole process again. Here's your topic for next week. Here's some things that I think you should read. See you next Wednesday. And that's how it worked. It's just a totally different experience from a pedagogical standpoint. Um, but I think from, a, from the perspective of, of preparing folks for the real world and how everything has kind of come to me in the private sector, that's how things work. No one's going to say exactly what you're supposed to do when you're looking at it for a new idea for a company. Right? You go out, you find the best things that you find, and you try to assimilate curate and bring things together in a way that happens as fast as humanly possible. You have to be as efficient as possible. So that's Oxford. I've, n- I've never heard about anything about the school or the process, and I, I love the way that you described it. Not only the terminology, the way that they use, the way they describe, you know, reading a subject and a tutor and a don, because at Ohio State, we had access to a lot of resources, tutoring, tutors being one of them. And I found myself the majority of the time going to class to get information from a book presented to me, but actually learning it when I was engaged with my tutor and actually sitting down. 
And I think one of the biggest things I struggle with now going into the real world and wanting to start my own company is not knowing, you know, all this world of information and not knowing how to make it more granular. And it's because I mastered the process of school and having somebody tell me what I need to learn and becoming a master at it. But I can't relate it to the real world yet. And right. it's been, you know, a real struggle. Yeah. So it's really interesting to hear that. I get it. Um, yeah, I think it, it's a, the Oxbridge system is a better system but it's a really expensive system. It's it, you know, think about one on one type of engagements that you can't sustain that economically for the most part. So I think even Oxford's changing a little bit. I haven't heard too much about the, the new stuff, but um, that is just a better model. And frankly, it's the way that I think you know the real world works. I also think that especially for what I did, liberal arts is absolutely essential. I know the trend is in the exact opposite direction. Go get your engineering degree, go get a technical degree, you know, focus heavily on this, which will get you a job for that. Um, you know, do a business degree or whatever. But you know, look, at everything that, that I've ever been involved with, you know, I, I can honestly say I have never been the smartest guy in the room. And um, you know, when I have a company, I never want to be the smartest guy in the room. I want to hire guys a lot, lot smarter than I am. But, you know, I, I always think that I'm able, because of my liberal arts background, my humanities background, I'm able to have a framework within which I am able to process and understand information. And that ultimately is, I think, what a lot of business is all about. It's a lot of what organizational um, work is all about. It's being able to understand lots of different things and to be able to, to write and speak critically and eloquently. Uh, you know, we find, and this is something that's probably said a lot, we find that kids today just don't write very well. You have to be able to write because writing, as an Oxford Don once told me, he said, how do I know what you think unless you write it down? Um, it is a window into how your mind works. So the way in which you write it says a lot about what's inside your head. And I, I don't think that, that we spend enough time really helping kids write better. I, I was lucky because I was an English and political science major, and my first uh, English advisor was a woman called Lisa Kaiser, Professor Kaiser. Um, and she was just brilliant. I mean, she, she taught me in one semester how to write. I you know, great English teachers in high school, but I never really understood how to write until she sat me down and beat me up most of the time, right? That's, that's what writing is. It's just, it's a painful process. Yeah. Um, and she got me to the point where I was able to write well enough to, to get through a college experience. And then over time, the more you write, the better you get. Yeah, the one final thing to touch on that, there's been tons of studies that have come out recently and over the years about self-reflection on whatever you're going through and how much you absorb after you reflect back on it. And it seems like that process of writing that essay makes you really reflect back on every single thing that you're doing. So then, obviously, like if I can regurgitate like I was trying to do on this economics before you came here to Mike, I can understand it at a much deeper level than if I can just read it myself. So that's interesting. Yeah. But kind of carrying on through that, um, let's go from... You know, once you finished up your two years there, kind of, what do your process look like towards starting your first company? Yeah, so um, there were a lot, a lot of detours along the way. Um, so I got back from England, and uh, I had a uh, an experience with the Cleveland Browns, 
So uh, two years out of football, I came back and said, you know, I think I can still play. So I was a free agent with the Browns um, for a, a very, very brief period. And uh, at the end of camp, I was unceremoniously dismissed from the team, cut by the Turk, as they call it. Um, Marty Schottenheimer was the coach at the time. <laughs> uh, Marty's a great coach. I mean, did wonderful things, but never really had a, a sense of humor. I think it was surgically removed at birth. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was a great experience. I'm glad I did it. Um, but I moved on. You know, one of those things, wrestlers have a really great tradition, by the way. You know, when, you, when you're done wrestling, when your career is over, what do you do? Put the uh, shoes on the mat. Put the shoes on the mat. That is a wonderful tradition. I love that tradition. Um, and, and in football, it's not you know it's not that not that classic. I don't think. But um, yeah, everyone knows when they're done with whatever they're doing athletically. I mean, Father Time is undefeated. Somebody said that a hundred years ago. But uh, yeah, I knew I was done after I got cut. I didn't want to keep going back and to the next camp, the next camp, the next camp. So I said. You know, the next step in my path um, was the military. And again, primarily because of guys that I talked to when I was an undergrad, like Professor Murray um, in military history. Um, and then at the time, a, uh, the, the mayor of Columbus, of all, all people, but he was a former Ohio State football player from Cleveland, a guy called Greg Lashutka. So he and I hit it off, and he, uh, he was a Navy guy. So we talked a lot about what the Navy meant to him and how it helped him <clears throat> through his intellectual and and, uh, and and business maturation process. And so I decided I was going to go to the Navy. And so I went to officer candidate school and then ended up serving a little over four years, not quite four and a half years of active duty as a surface warfare officer in the Navy. And uh, I was... Right. What does that entail? That's a... So surface warfare means that you are driving big ships, like you know the old John Wayne Navy, if you've ever seen those kinds of movies, um, as opposed to the aviators or the sub submariners, those kind of guys. I was a, a surface guy. Um, the first half of my Navy career, I was stationed um, in the Philippines, so at Subic Bay, which is now no longer a U.S. base in the Philippines. And the second half, I was stationed... At San Diego, so uh, love San Diego, love every every aspect of San Diego, um, and actually had the really good fortune uh, to to live in La Jolla with a couple other guys in a house no about about a hundred meters from the beach. So right. yeah, not a bad time in my life. Looking back, yeah. So my dad was um, a Marine Corps aviator. He was a fighter pilot, and that's how he was stationed out there. He was in Miramar for when back when Top Gun was still at Miramar. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah. This, I mean, it's a great military town. There's a lot of military uh, folks around. And, and like you said, La Jolla is just a gorgeous, gorgeous area. I mean, I don't know. If you've never been to California, you don't really understand how nice it is. Yeah, he always describes it. But I say, yeah, like, especially in comparison, so nice. in comparison to other parts of California. Right. If I, if I were to live in California, that would be the place I'd live mm -hmm. in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But um, let's keep moving forward. So from the Navy, you went into... Um, Anyway. Yeah, so the Navy, um, I came back from the Navy, actually did law school for a year, uh, and then at the end of that year, got hooked up into something that was going to be called the Internet. This is in <laughs> 94, 93, 94, something like that, and um, 
it's kind of a bizarre entry into that world. But, you know, things have a way of working out. And the Navy took me from my liberal arts background in English and political science, added some technical capability. So uh, the Navy is very technical in a lot of things it does. In my last job in the Navy, I was in charge of all the ship's computers. So um, I had fun with computers and then wound up at, again, what we later known as, known as a startup, um, and did that for a couple of years, a really cool initial project. Unfortunately, we're a little too early, maybe a little more than little. What were you guys doing? We were doing international trade and e-commerce way back in 1994, five, six timeframe. Um, we had to write a bunch of code just to do stuff that would be available for free, you know, only a few years later. <laughs> so learned a lot. Uh, decided that, um, you know, there was something to this this internet web thing, but I, I needed to go off and do some other things for a while. So I went up to New York and um, worked on Wall Street for a company called Nomura Securities. I was a, uh, a, a trader, an agency trader first and a, prop, a proprietary trader second. Did that for a couple of years. Again, learned a ton. I mean, that was um, education by fire hose. Uh, loved the environment, loved the stuff I was doing. But at the end of the day, I was probably a very mediocre trader. Um, and so at the time, my wife and I had this crazy community relationship. She was a lawyer at the Department of Justice in D.C. So we were technically living in Northern Virginia, and I was commuting up to New York on a Monday, back on a Friday, and you know, stay up um, during the week. And then we had our first kid and said, yeah, this is not sustainable, so what are we going to do? And we looked around at both... New York and, and uh, D.C., and eventually she did, I got home one day, and she just said, we must have had a bad week with our son. So we're going back home. So <laughs> she's from a place called Wilmington, Ohio, which is about an hour south of here, and I'm from Cleveland, so we kind of ended up splitting the difference and um, moved to Columbus. She went to law school here and um, did her her graduate work here as well. So Is that where you spent your year of law school? Was it here? Yeah, Ohio State. Okay. Yeah, came back. Um so we ended up here, and then I uh, worked for a really good company called National City Bank. Uh, may it rest in peace. Unfortunately, got caught up in the 2008-2009 crisis, and it was absorbed by PNC, so it's now part of PNC. But it was a really terrific bank, really smart people working there. Um, I stayed there for a couple years and then got that bug again to do the entrepreneurial stuff, so branched out. Um, started hooking up with a company in Atlanta that did business process management, BPM, stuff, consulting. We were trying to productize some of what they were doing. Didn't work out like like we wanted it to. How did you get linked up then? So when I was working at National City, uh, my first job was kind of like the, the CIO, Chief Information Officer for the Wealth Management Group. Um, and while I was doing that, I spent a lot of time working on business process stuff and CRM, customer relationship management stuff. So we installed something called Siebel Systems, which is a CRM system that eventually got picked up by Oracle. Um, but back in the day, it was it was the player in CRM. And so I learned a lot about that. And then some of the, the guys working on the, on the National City Project were part of that consulting company in Atlanta. So I got to know them there. We went... Um, Went down there frequently, tried to productize some things, and um, eventually didn't work out, but it got me hooked up on something else. Uh, 
and that would eventually be called clear sailing. So clear sailing evolved out of that, not directly, but indirectly. And um, you know, clear sailing was a wild ride. We uh, started the company in 2006, 2007, um, and it was focused on, on a concept of uh, called attribution management. So this is <clears throat> geared towards the advertising world. Uh, we were looking at companies, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies that were spending you know, some millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars sometimes on online advertising. And everyone at that point, it was a wild, wild west. No one really knew what pieces and parts of their advertising portfolio um, were actually driving returns. So uh, I had that financial background. I hooked up with, with a guy called um, Adam Goldberg and some other teammates um, that went on to create this, this really cool company that helped understand, helped the big companies understand how they were supposed to drive returns on their advertising investments. So we made it so that it was a lot easier to pull the covers back on all the complexity and say that there might be 15 things that led up to the purchase of that product. But of those 15, only these three were responsible for most of the lift. And you know that intuitively from how you search today, mm-hmm. how, how you complete that buying process. Intuitively, you know that there are some things that catch your eye. Yeah. There might be some unconscious stuff going on too with display advertising. You know, everyone says they don't look at display advertising, but I think it works in some cases. So we did that. We helped a lot of companies save a lot of money, but more importantly, um, <clears throat> we helped them maximize their return on their advertising investment. And that's really what, what the whole the whole mission was. So we sold that company uh, in 2011. How 12. big was it when you sold it? Um, so we were, by employee-wise, we were 55-ish, 50, 55 employees. And it was you and one other partner or multiple partners? So um, we had a couple of co- couple of partners. Um, yeah. Randy Smith was my primary partner, Ryan Memelar, uh, Adam Goldberg. And so you know, we were the guys that were primarily responsible for bringing on the rest of the team. And you guys know it's all about the team, mm-hmm. right? So you have to have the right people in the right place at the right time. Sometimes those three things don't always happen. You get the right people, but it's just the wrong place and time, and so it doesn't work out. It doesn't really form a team. Um, I think lightning struck, and you know, like every small startup, there was friction and creative differences and all that stuff, but we were able to make it work. Um, it's just one of those things. I mean, startups don't always work, and... They don't, don't always go in a straight line, and so you have to have the team to figure out how to, to manage the, the tough parts of what you're doing. When the market says no, right, you're on the wrong track. Do you just fold up your tent and go home? Um, or do you improvise, adapt, and overcome and figure out how to deliver to the market what they're looking for in a better way, better, faster, cheaper than, than you were doing it? So does that company still exist today? Uh, no. So we sold it. And we sold it to one of our customers called GSI Commerce. GSI Commerce then got bought by eBay. We wish we'd known that two months earlier. Uh, but um, they used clear sailing as part of their digital marketing offering at eBay for a while. And then I think they sold it off. To be honest, I'm not even sure where it is right now. Uh, but during that period in which we were 
um, negotiating uh, the sale of the company, I actually had gotten back into the military, so kind of going back to that whole world. Um, I decided I got an itch I, I had to scratch, and so I went into the Army Reserve, of all things, from the Navy to the Army, which was an amazing transition, <laughs> but it is what it is. Um, and so I became a, a civil affairs officer in the Army, and <clears throat> I thought I would get a little bit of training. Before, I knew I'd probably have to deploy eventually, but I thought I might have you know, two years before anything happened. Unfortunately, you know, my first drill was in, I think, uh, December of '09. The next drill was in January of 2010, and my, my battalion commander tapped me on the shoulder and said, can I talk to you for a second? And I said, sure. He said, well, you're deploying. So <laughs> um, I uh, spent the next, I don't know, six months getting ready for the, for the deployment, and then about a year on the deployment and um, came back with a couple of new ideas. Um, one of which was a precursor to OnScene, and um, here we are. So that precursor, was that the Smart Crowds? That was Smart Crowds. And then how did that differ? This is probably the pivot you were talking about earlier. Yeah, this is a major pivot. So Smart Crowds was designed to be a free event platform. So there's lots of companies out there that are doing event software, but they're charging you know, five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 per event to do it. Um, we thought that there was a an opening in the marketplace for a company that offered that kind of that kind of functionality for free and use more of a social media business model to make it work so get a whole bunch of eyeballs and then figure out how to monetize those eyeballs so that was the that was the plan unfortunately especially in the midwest free is very expensive and you have to have deep pockets on the venture capital side uh, investors that are willing to tolerate, you know, several years of no revenue to make that kind of a model work. And it's just, we're not quite there yet in the Midwest for that kind of a model. I mean, it's the LinkedIn model. It's the, you know, the Facebook model, the Twitter model. Um, those things are pretty common out on the West Coast, but not so much here. And you have to hit it and you have to be really good on your execution to make that work. And um, we never got the product quite where we wanted it to get. And, um, Did you take on investment before that? We, no? we took on investment for that company. So you know, we had really good investors, angel investors primarily, um, who were very patient and uh, let us try to work it out. You know, we got to a point where we said um, there might be some better ways to do what we're trying to do. And we were starting to look at the, <clears throat> at the end of you know, just before the pivot um, we were starting to look at location for events. So when you go to events, there's lots of ways in which you might want to use location. From as, something as simple as when you walk by a booth, there might be a beacon, and the beacon pushes a notification to your phone that says, hey, come on in and talk to us about our product, and you'll get entered into a drawing or something like that. Um, I mentioned early on, how if you're managing a big event like a marathon across a city, how location becomes very important. So we took what I think was the best part of smart crowds and expanded on that and really made it a pure play location company and transitioned into on-scene. So, again, I mean, these things never, ever go in a straight line. Um, you know, both at, 
at Clear Sailing, we had really smart technical people. I mean, just you know, really bright technology people. Our CTO, our CIO, these guys were just really smart guys, and they were able to figure out how that stuff worked. And that still carried on. Um, the next company was Smart Crowds. We had really smart guys, but just could, couldn't quite get to that last inch you know, to get the product where it was frictionless. And that's in social media models you have to be frictionless. If it, if it takes people too long to figure it out, you're probably not going to, not going to win. Um, but now we've got, you know, some of the same guys doing the technology for on scene. And, um, yeah, I think we're, we're onto something really big conceptually. Uh, I think we're, we're definitely in the right zip code. I mean, this is where the market wants us to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we just have to figure out, you know, how to, how to execute the product as, as well as we can. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, with all the guests we've interviewed and all the stories we've heard about all these startups and businesses that people have started, um, I think one of the most common themes is that the first problem that you try to solve and the first solution you offer is always, always going to be slightly off. And the market is always going to correct you. And if you don't listen to the market, if you don't listen to the people that are um, telling you, hey, this is the way I could use this, if you can come back and adjust or make adjustments and follow through and talk to your team members about how to get to that sweet spot, uh, it's just not going to work. Some people talk about it about being like romantic with your business idea because you're in love with the way that it works and you think that it's going to be something great and you don't want to pivot, but then eventually you just kind of got to listen to the numbers and the people and, and change directions. But as we come to a close, kind of one of the things we want to wrap up with that we always ask, the theme of the podcast um, that we have is live uncomfortably because we found that a lot of the people who – you know, we interview, they've lived uncomfortable for some portion of their lives and it's a significant reason on why they are where they are today. So I guess what we'd like to ask is, um, and, and we can probably gain a lot of it from your story, but what kind of sticks out the most to you in that sense and uh, how does it resonate with your life? Yeah, if, if you are an entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur at that, uh, you're, you're going to live uncomfortably. It is never easy. Um, you know, you never think that you're on the right track until all of a sudden you are. And there might be guys out there that, that hit it hard from day one and yeah, they just have the, the right touch and it all works. In my experience, that hasn't been the case. And there are, are nights when I think a lot of guys in my, in my position, you know, doing these crazy startups, um, have the same experience where you literally watch the ceiling fan go round and round above your head thinking, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? You know, how are we going to make payroll? How are we going to do these things? All those questions just keep running through your head. And so, you know, it's, it becomes a process that wrestlers are very familiar with. It's just mental toughness. Um, and, then, you know, it's mental toughness, it's persistence, but then you have to always be on guard there's a fine line between persistence and, stu- and stupidity. And you, you have to be on guard for that because you never, I mean, there's a, a saying in, in the startup world, fail fast. So you know, get the failures out of the way as fast as you can so you can reallocate resources to something that is much more likely to succeed. But then there's that, that competing sentiment that, boy, I don't want to fail that fast. I want to keep doing it because I know there's something here. I think that's the most difficult thing and the thing that, that makes a lot of guys in, in this world very uncomfortable. 
Um, it's just a, a grind sometimes. And, you know, eight years after you start the company, all of a sudden, you, you know, some, some of these guys become overnight successes. It wasn't overnight. I mean, it was eight years of pain and misery and anguish. And um, having said that, you know, if you're, if you're doing the right thing, if, if, you're, if you're in the right place, it's a lot of fun. I, I wouldn't have, you know, I think there's two kinds of people in the world. There are creators and there are sustainers. And they're both equally valuable. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. Um, you just have to know, know who you are. And I like to start stuff. I'm not necessarily the best sustainer. I kind of get bored quickly. And so our model is to build something that has sustainable value and let somebody else come in and buy it or somehow absorb it and, and take it to, to the next level. So that's how we work. And if that's your model, it's always, always going to be interesting to wake up the next day. Yeah, well, Mike, I think that's a great place to wrap up the show. Uh, we really appreciate your time today. And do uh, you have any final words for our listeners, the people of Columbus? Um, I love Columbus, and I think we're getting there in terms of the, the venture-backed startup community. It's taking a long time. Uh, I would love to see my, my beloved alma mater participate a little bit more actively in the startup community. I'd love to see um, venture capital firms move into the area. We've got a couple of really good ones. Our venture capital firm is called NCT Ventures. Awesome, awesome guys, smart guys. Uh, we need more. And if we have more of those guys moving into Columbus, I think you're going to see Columbus become one of the, the hotbeds for tech entrepreneurship in the country. Great. Well, hey, Conquerors, we hope you enjoyed that episode of Conquering Columbus. And uh, that was Mike Linese. Lenise. Actually, you're right. It's Italian. So okay. Lenese, but See, I'm Italian too. So I, I said it Lenise the this, first time. In this country, it's Lenise. University of Oxford. University of Oxford. And uh, this is Conquering Columbus. We'll talk to you guys next week. If you like that episode, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. We're all over the place, guys. Share it with your friends. Also want to ask you if you could do us a big favor. Check out that podcast app you're listening to us on. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. Again, it really helps us out, and it makes sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. Last thing we want to do before we let you go here is give one last shout-out to all of our incredible sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools, 
to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. And if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city, please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. There will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode. And if you guys could fill that out for us, we'd really appreciate it. All right, folks, that's all we got. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.